So again, this morning we are going to be in Matthew 5, verses 43 through 48. Matthew 5, verses 43 through 48. I'll give you a second to flip there. Matthew 5, 43 through 48. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but have you ever noticed that parents really do tend to pass on specific character traits to their children? Um, I mean, sometimes a child physically looks like one or the other of their parents. Uh, but I'm talking about character traits. Uh, as a parent, I think I've noticed this more and more and more with my own kids. Uh, Ruby, for sure, got Shannon's outgoing, fun-loving, life-of-the-party personality. Uh, in fact, for you Enneagram people, uh, Shannon just texted me this week and she said, if Ruby isn't a seven on the Enneagram, I don't know who is. Uh, that's exactly what, what Shannon is. So I, I see so much of myself in Carson. Uh, she's the firstborn. She's cautious. She's an analyzer. She's always thinking through things, and she's absolutely a picky eater. Uh, in many ways, you can tell a lot about parents from their children, and that's just one of Jesus' main points in his text today. Uh, as children of God, we're called and commissioned to display our Father's character, specifically his love. So let's dive into the text, Matthew 5, verses 43 through 48. This is the word of the Lord. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. While the Sermon on the Mount spans from Matthew chapter 5 to Matthew chapter 7, uh, this text concludes Jesus's second major section of teaching in that sermon, and it's where we will be concluding our study of the sermon this summer. In, in verses 1 through 12 and 13 through 16, Jesus began, if you'll remember, by teaching us who we are as Christians. He gave us eight key heart postures of a true kingdom citizen and then commissioned us as salt and light into the world. Then he launched into a true examination of our hearts, showing us how external righteousness is only the tip of the iceberg in a Christian's life. Verse 20 uh, has been a key verse where, where Jesus says this. He says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he proceeded in the next several sections to show how our, our righteousness fails. But we are to remember his words from verses 17 and 18. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. In other words, everywhere we've failed at keeping the law, Christ has fulfilled it. We'll talk more about that later today. So in this last section, Jesus presses home a familiar point, yet again, contrasting the the Pharisees and the scribes' teaching with that of the Old Testament and his own righteousness. And so uh, our main points for today are these. Number one, be loving. Number two, be like your father. Number three, be different. And number four, be perfect. So let's dive in at point one, be loving. Look with me again at verses 43 through 44. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. One last time, Jesus uses this now familiar pattern of, You have heard, but I say to you, So one last time, we're going to kind of follow our threefold method of looking at these sayings. So number one, what does the Old Testament actually say and mean? Two, uh, what were the Pharisees teaching differently than that? And three, what was Jesus teaching in fulfillment of the Old Testament? Okay, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Uh, Unlike the last couple of weeks, something about that sounds off, right? Uh, The first part makes sense biblically. You shall love your neighbor. So far, so good. Sounds biblical. But you shall hate your enemy? That doesn't sound biblical at all. If you're thinking that, good. You're right. Uh, This is... A longer section, but I want to read the entire thing. It's Leviticus chapter 19, verses 9 through 18. Leviticus 19, verses 9 through 18. And it says this. It says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. We learned about that in the book of Ruth, if you'll remember. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely, and you shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. In verse 13, it says, You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear the Lord, you shall fear, fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall not do injustice, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. Verse 17. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. 
but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Later on in Leviticus 19, verse 34, it extends that love of neighbor to both the stranger and the sojourner. Uh, They were to be considered as neighbors. So in this text, Leviticus 19, you can see that God has a lot to say about our relationships with our neighbor. Don't oppress your neighbor. Do injustice or do, do justice to your neighbor. Don't slander or stand up against the life of your neighbor. Reason straightforwardly with your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, what did the Pharisees do with this? They reasoned, well, if God's telling us this, all of this stuff about our neighbor, if God's telling us this, he must be telling us the opposite as well. It's like, if I told you to be a Giants fan, love the Giants, you'd reasonably consider what? You're to hate the Dodgers, right? This is what the the Pharisees were doing with Leviticus 19. If God wants us to love our neighbor, he probably wants us to hate our enemies. That's what they heard. That's not what God said. It's like Eve in the garden, right? God said one thing, but she added to it. Genesis 2, verses 16 through 17 says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Skip over to Genesis 3, verses 1 through 3. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Not what he said, right? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. You see that? She changed what God said in multiple ways, one of which was adding to it. God never said, neither shall you touch it. And this is a common deception of Satan, taking what God actually said and twisting it or subtracting from it, and sometimes even adding to it. The Pharisees were good at all of this, as we've seen multiple times. Anytime we play with the word of God, we distort God's law, and we've learned that we distort his character. The scribes and the Pharisees had misunderstood God's call for separation from the nations. That is something that God called them to do, to be separate from the nations. But they mistook that, you know, not to act like them or worship like them or to think like them. So they had taken that call and deduced, well, God, God must be calling us to hate them. So here in Matthew 5, this is exactly what the Pharisees had done. Even more, while they were kind of expanding Leviticus 19, they were also, with the other hand, trying to narrow it. Uh, they're saying, okay, God 
calls us to, to love our neighbor, which must mean hating our enemy. But, but really, even narrower, narrower than that, who's my neighbor? They, they even wanted to narrow the word neighbor, as we saw in the passage earlier. So they had to, to love even less people. Not only do they not have to love their enemies, but they're narrowing even what the word neighbor means. Again, their interpretation of the Old Testament was actually making a mockery of God. So be careful when you're trying to use the word of God to justify your own lovelessness. So what does Jesus say? In response to that, verse 44, Jesus says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is the key principle and point of the entire text. We're going to get to the motives and methods behind why we love later, but this is the main point. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Wow. Really, Jesus? It's easy to love my wife and my friends and everyone who loves me. I can do that if that's what you want of me, Jesus. But enemies? Loving someone who doesn't love me? Loving someone who doesn't have my best interest in mind? Loving someone who'd love to undercut me and take me down? That's hard. That's not our natural tendency. Yes, but that's exactly Jesus' point. That's what he's calling us to. So what does it mean to love our enemies? What does it mean to love our enemies? Our knee-jerk reaction there is to connect love to sheer emotion, right? To think that love means we have an emotional feeling for someone. But is that what Jesus is saying here? I don't think so. And I think this is a good place to add that loving someone is not necessarily the same thing as liking someone. Liking someone is to have certain emotional feelings toward them. And I'm not sure that we can actually entirely control our feelings in that way. I'm not sure it's always possible to like everyone. In fact, in a sense, God doesn't like the way we are, but he loves us. That's an entirely different thing. Love isn't a matter of feelings. It's a matter of the will. And because the will actually expresses itself in action, we can do good to someone whether we feel like it or not, when our wills are surrendered to Christ. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus spells this out a little bit more on this subject. Luke chapter 6, verses 27 and 28, he says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. You see how concrete those actions are? To love is to do good, to bless pray for. These things can be done regardless of how your emotions are acting or or how you feel. 
Now, I'm not, I want you to hear me clearly here, I'm not advocating that we, we just love cold-heartedly. Uh, when we will to love someone, I believe our emotions and our hearts begin to follow. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. He says, <coughs> he says, the rule for all of us is perfectly simple. Do not waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as, as if you loved someone, you will presently come to love him. If you injure someone you dislike, you will find yourself disliking him more. If you do him a good turn, you will find yourself dis disliking him less. The difference between a Christian and a worldly man is not that the worldly man has only affections or likings and the Christian has only charity. The worldly man treats certain people kindly because he likes them. The Christian, trying to treat everyone kindly, finds himself liking more and more people as he goes on, including people he could not even have imagined himself liking at the beginning. Great quote. You're not being called to conjure up false emotion here, but you are being called to love. I'm not sure where I got this, this definition entirely, but it's been a helpful one to me over the years as I'm thinking through the word love and kind of considering uh, the emotions or sometimes lack thereof. Uh, love is a fiery affection for another one's good. Love is a fiery affection for another's good, which we believe is ultimately found in Christ. Again, you don't have to like the person to aim for their ultimate good, which is ultimately found in Christ. You see, for the Pharisee, they believed that they were called to, to look out for their neighbor and everyone else could go to hell, literally. If I genuinely love someone, though, I can't have that posture. I care about them enough. I love them enough that even if I disagree with them, even if I don't like them, even if they're my enemy, I desire their good. I don't want them to perish. I don't want them to go to hell. I love them enough to want their good in the person of Jesus Christ. In both Matthew chapter 5 and Luke 6 that we read just a second ago, Jesus specifically calls us to pray. This is one of those things that, that it's, it's really, really hard to continually pray for someone and to not grow in love towards them. I know of numerous pastors who kind of confront conflict in this way. Uh, they've got two men or two women in their church who are upset at each other, and so they get them together to pray for and with one another. It's really hard to pray for or with someone and to kind of white-knuckle hold a grudge against them. So, do you love your neighbors, first and foremost? Do you love your neighbor? And then, do you love your enemies? Maybe it's someone who's on the opposite side of the aisle as you politically. Again, Jesus isn't calling you to agree with them. He may find their positions just as evil as you do, but he is calling you to love them. 
He's calling you to do good to them. He's calling you to bless them. And he's calling you to pray for them. So first and foremost, be loving. Second, be like your father. If if the primary command in this text is to be loving, what's the the motivation? What's the, the, the kind of why behind it? Well, look with me at verse 45. Jesus, first and foremost, says that we're to love our enemies, in verse 45, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Uh, Alfred Plummer said it this way. He said, to return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human. But to return good for evil is divine. When we love our enemies and when we pray for them, that's godly love. That's divine love. That's how our Father in heaven loves. That's what we're being called to. Like father, like son. In fact, that's exactly what the the son, Jesus Christ, loved like. Throughout the New Testament, we see Jesus serving his enemies through feeding them and teaching them and healing them, even though he knew that they were the ones who were going to kill him. We also see Jesus praying for his enemies repetitively. John Stott points this out. He says, Jesus seems to have prayed for his tormentors actually while the iron spikes were being driven through his hands and his feet. Indeed, the imperfect tense suggests that he kept praying, kept repeating his entreaty. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Luke 23, verse 34. He goes on and he says, If the cruel torture of crucifixion could not silence our Lord's prayer for his enemies... What pain, pride, prejudice, or sloth could justify the silencing of ours? Convicting. So Jesus served his enemies. He prayed for his enemies. Third, Jesus died for his enemies. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 10, Paul says, For while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even to die. But God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Verse 10, For if... While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. That's what the son loved like. Because it's a reflection of what God the Father loves like. James Boyce helpfully notes, he points out that in the New Testament, there's hardly a verse that speaks of God's love without also speaking in context of the cross. Look at this. John 3.16, famous passage, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So God loving connected to the cross. Galatians 2 verse 20. 
Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 1 John 4.10, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. We are called to love our enemies because it's how God loves. Just as people can tell a lot about a parent by looking at their children, people are meant to know a lot about God by looking at us. Again, voice comments, he says, God has really given men five gospels. Gospel according to Matthew, gospel according to Mark, gospel according to Luke, gospel according to John, and the gospel according to to you. How then do men come to know God? They come to know him through Jesus Christ. And how do they come to know Jesus Christ? They come to know him as they see him in the scriptures and in your conduct. You are the closest some men and women will ever get to Jesus Christ. If they do not see Christ's love in you, they will never see it. So, If someone were to comb through your Facebook and Twitter posts, if if they were to watch a recording of the way that you live your life, if they were able to listen to the way that you spoke to others, if they could see how you loved others or didn't, what would they conclude about your God? This this isn't a, a hypothetical. The world is watching you, Christian. Maybe not on a recording, but in real time. You, Christian, and you, church, are called to be like your father. We can never sacrifice for our enemies in the way that Jesus did. We can't make atonement for sin. But we can display God's character through our actions, both individually and, more importantly, corporately as members of Christ's body, the church. And very quickly, note what Jesus says. He says, For he, speaking of God the Father, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. The point is this. While God loves his people and only his people redemptively, he shows mercy and grace to all indiscriminately. That's the point. He's trying to to correct this in the Pharisees. They understood that God had called them to live separately with regard to holiness. But they believed that they were the only ones God cared about and for. They believed that they were the, the, the only ones who should experience God's grace. God shows common grace all around us to the just, and the unjust, to the evil and the good. You should too. We love our enemies because we're sons of the Father, and we're called to be like him, reflecting his character indiscriminately to everyone around us. So be loving and be like your Father. Third, be different. Be different. 
So if we're called to love and we're called to love so that we're like our Father, what does that mean? It means being different in the world. Look with me at verses 46 through 47. Jesus says, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? What a a piercing question in verse 47, huh? What more are you doing than others? And in, in his example, the others were tax collectors and Gentiles. For, for the Pharisees, these were people that they looked down on. They saw the tax collectors as sellouts, and they saw the Gentiles as unclean pagans. So Jesus' point here is, as God's sons and daughters, you should love those who love you. You should greet your brothers. But you're called to more than that. Santa Cruz Baptist Church. The world around us loves those who love them. We're called to live superior to the pattern of the world around us. Even the most hard-hearted atheists look out for their own. Jesus is saying, Christians, I'm expecting you to love more than that. So when you look around you, do you love more than those around you who don't know Jesus? When you look around you, do you love more than those around you who don't know Jesus? I want us to think about that and prayerfully consider that question. Be loving, be like your father, be different. And fourth, be perfect. Be perfect. Now, uh, while there's certainly a a tie-in to this final text that we've been looking at this morning here, I believe verse 48 is kind of a a concluding sentence for the entire chapter. Uh, Remember Jesus' words we read earlier from verse, verse 20. He says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, to that, the Pharisees and probably Jesus' disciples are probably thinking, okay, well, how much, Jesus? How much does, does my righteousness need to exceed here? He then goes on to explain multiple ways, not of how our righteousness exceeds, but how our righteousness actually fails. We've broken the sixth commandment. We've broken the seventh. We've broken the third. And none of us loves like God. Jesus, you're you're saying jump, but how high? We we realize that you've shown us how we've all failed. But now we're ready to go try again and succeed in righteousness. How much do we need to exceed? How good is good enough? To close out this teaching section, look what Jesus says in verse 48. You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. If we've learned anything from the Sermon on the Mount, I hope that we've learned that we're not perfect. None of us. Not one. 
All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've, we've learned that our hearts are wicked even when our actions are good. We don't measure up to God's standards. By ourselves, we can never be perfect. But God does a miracle in his people. Uh, look with me at Psalm 18, verses 30 through 32. Psalm 18, verses 30 through 32. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? The God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless. That word there, blameless, in verse 32 is the same Hebrew word translated perfect in verse 30. So, First of all, who is God? He's perfect. What does he do? He perfects sinful men and women. He's the only one who can make my way perfect. But how does he do it? Look what the author of Hebrews says. Hebrews 10 verse 14 says, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So how can you be perfect? Only through the single sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. He was perfect in every single way. He ran the race perfectly. He was perfect as his heavenly father is perfect. And he went to the cross and died in our place as our substitute. He bore the penalty for our imperfection. And his perfection is credited to us the moment we repent and believe. The moment we turn from sin and trust in Christ as our Lord and Savior. So understand this. The moment you became a Christian, in one sense, you were declared before the judgment seat of a holy God to be perfect. But... In another sense, you're still being perfected. The process is known as sanctification. Paul says it this way in Philippians 3, verses 12 through 16. He says, Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, do, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So if you've repented and believed in Jesus, you are declared perfect. But God is still perfecting you every single day. Why, why do we try to live lives of holiness then? Well, not so that we can be declared perfect or be declared a child of God. We already are those things. There's nothing that you can do to take that away. But we strive towards holiness so that we might better reflect God's character. 
You are the only Bible that many people will ever read. So how are you reflecting your heavenly Father? If you're here and you're you're not a Christian, first and foremost, we're glad that you're here. This is a great place for you. We hope that you've actually experienced some of God's character this morning through your interactions with the members of this church. Number one, we would love to repent and apologize for any time we or another Christian has displayed God's character falsely to you. We believe in a God of love, of mercy, justice, truth, and beauty. Forgive us for where we've blurred or confused that for you. Second, we would love for you to know that you're not here by mistake this morning. Again, he's perfect, even in his sovereignty to bring you here today. He's speaking to you. He wants you to know that you are a sinner. Just like every single one of us here, you've broken God's law countless times. You've committed treason against the king of the universe. But here's the good news. You can be forgiven. You can be made perfect because of Jesus. He died on the cross for the forgiveness of sin. Repent and believe and you will be saved. There's nothing like following Jesus. He'll change your heart. He'll change your life. You've never experienced more love than what Jesus has to offer. And we invite you to give your life to Jesus today. Be loving. Be like your Father. Be different. And be perfect. Let's pray.